Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's conversation. I'm super excited to have with us Jacob, who is the head of product strategy at BitDAO and also the head of product of one of its projects, uh, Game 7. We're going to have a really interesting conversation about, of course, decentralized autonomous organizations and other entities around that space. We'll also chat about his journey towards that destination, how it came to be, and the different paths through technology and through crypto and DeFi towards what is looking like a really interesting emergent entity. And with that, Jacob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Lex. I'm super excited to super excited to talk to you. My pleasure. Yeah, it's great to catch up and I'm excited about what you're doing next. But of course, let's start with what you did first. You know, people don't end up running product in a big DAO out of nowhere. So you've had a pretty storied career of kind of building products and having, you know, CTO and product roles all over the place. What are some of those formative experiences that you can tell us about where you started building technology products? I was in the very early days of the Bitcoin ecosystem was, you know, I, I, I experimented and, and dabbled with being a Bitcoin miner back in 2011, kind of gotten swept up in the, the Occupy Wall Street scene. Were you occupying? I did. Were you mining Bitcoin while occupying Wall Street at the same time? Yes, yes I was. I thought there was no electricity in the tents. Or is, <laughs> so, is it wind powered? Well, I, I had an apartment. <laughs> Actually, it made my apartment super hot. And I, I kind of like, you know, I think I mined like one BTC. And then I was like, well, this is super cool. It made my heart apartment super hot. I'm going to turn this off now. And, you know, it, it was, you know, it was a, a vague interest to me. And, you know, some, some time went on. And I, I had been part of founding a very, very early team around a real estate marketplace in, in my day job and had built that up. And, you know, it, it, it was a real estate marketplace that used a bunch of different in- incentives to do price discovery on difficult to value homes. It's still around. It's still going. Uh, it's called concierge auctions and it's now owned by Sotheby's, but I had, had built that up and, you know, I, real estate was never really my passion. It was, it was, a, it was a place where I learned to experiment and how to iterate on products and how to build in a feedback loop with customers and how to how to build iteratively and learn the lean startup methodology as a, a product development philosophy. What were the two sides of that auction marketplace? Was it direct kind of real estate assets on one end and then individuals on the other? Can you tell us a little bit more about how that came together? Yeah, so it's sellers and buyers, and it, it is sellers who typically have a home that is not in a commodity market. 
So it, it attracted a lot of homes that were in like secondary markets, vacation properties, things like that, or properties that were in smaller markets, but were nice homes. And so those properties don't have comparables. They often sit on the market for two to three years, you know, depending on, on market cycles. And so the idea was the seller would list their home on the marketplace. They would receive bids before an auction started and a potential buyer could get a discount by giving a bid before the auction started. So the the buyer gives a legally binding bid and gets a 10% discount on whatever bid they're giving, or it's not always 10%, but it would fluctuate. But they're basically generating all of these different offers for the seller. The seller, after 30 days of the property being listed on the marketplace, can look at the offers that they received. They can basically know that the final sale price is going to be plus or minus about 15% above the offers that they received on average. And they can decide, yes, I'm going to turn on this auction or no, I'm going to walk away from this. And so it it was a way to rapidly sell properties that were were eccentric or high value, mostly luxury properties, but not always. Some of them were farms, ranches, those sort of things. And, you know, or, or for like, I'll give you an example, like a, a regenerative agriculture farm, for example, which needs a particular kind of buyer. It's hard to find the buyer of a property like that. It's, it's not a commodity farm in the same way. And so, you know, that property would sit on the marketplace. It would generate all kinds of bids and all kinds of interest. And then the seller can take a look at that and decide, you know, I'm, I'm going to walk away or I'm going to, I'm going to sell this property. It might not have been explicit, but you know, so far you've mentioned Bitcoin and sort of bespoke real estate assets. Both of those have floating market mechanisms around them. And I think that echoes through quite a bit of your professional history in the future as well. So I, I did want to highlight that, especially as we get more towards digital assets. Sotheby's is a pretty great exit. What did you do after? This was actually, it was a complex deal. So I, I actually, for a, a brief period, joined Berkshire Hathaway in a, a complex transaction that happened around concierge auctions. But so I, I was there for about 18 months and oversaw the creation of their real estate technology lab, innovation lab, they call it, but it's Berkshire Hathaway. So innovation is kind of taboo there. So I, I helped stand that up and I had really in 2016, 20, late 2015, become really obsessed with Ethereum. And it was my passion, but I, I needed to help the, the real estate business see itself through. So I, I saw that through and then came and joined uh, Consensus on the very first project I could find. And it, it was a, a project called Penvala, which was a grant funding early grant funding DAO that was launched around the same time as Moloch V1. It it was a a product that helped to use token inflation to give larger grants and also used, you know, it had an early form of like representative delegation and and DAO governance, but both of which were in a lot of ways sort of ahead of its time and 
in some ways, you know, it, it was a little eccentric for its its time as well. And, you know, it, it is still around. It spun out of consensus. And when it spun out, I chose to stay in in consensus and, you know, had gotten a, a call from, from Dan Finlay who asked me to, to join MetaMask. And actually the morning he cried, he called me, I was, I was half asleep still. And I was so excited that I like kind of started sobbing because uh, uh, I, I both like really deeply respect Dan and have been a fanboy of MetaMask since the early Ethereum days. I, I onboarded into MetaMask in, in 2016 to buy ENS domains and kind of always believed that interoperability between dApps and interoperability between smart contracts and the ecosystem itself was going to be kind of the, the killer app of blockchains and that it would help grow our ecosystem to millions of people. And so as a, as a product person, I was extremely excited about that and really excited about MetaMask. And, you know, I, I joined the MetaMask team, then w- was originally in a product role and then transitioned into this operational co-lead role with, lead, lead of operations role with Dan. And then I, I worked on the the growth strategy, worked on the, the monetization strategy and got to do some really great work around those things. And I'm super proud of it. I wanted to ask a couple of defining questions on Panvala and sort of the thoughts around that, because it was 2019. 2019 is the tail end of a bear market where you know everybody would prefer to take the US dollar over some token that some company would print. We've rapidly come to a similar market environment now where lots of people have lots of skepticism about any token from any on-chain project and sort of cash is king again. But of course, there was a very powerful moment where DeFi, NFTs, and DAOs became very mainstream and are probably known to most people and lots of people have participated in them. But can you talk a little bit about like in 2019, what is it that you saw and kind of the founding team saw in governance, in ecosystem funding, and what was the hypothesis? And if you look at kind of where we are today, how would you compare that together? The core distinction in in the early grant DAO conception that we had was that by giving grants in our own token, that we would create incentive alignment between the builders who were receiving the grant and the DAO itself. So a minority of the teams who would receive the grants would sell the tokens, uh, which turned out to be the case. And the majority would often hold those tokens for a long time. And then they have a financial incentive to help promote the DAO, to provide a a marketing funnel for the DAO and and those sort of things. I do think that the, the Panvala model has some fundamental flaws in how it conceives of buy pressure and how it conceives of growing the value of its token or growing its treasury. There, there were early mechanisms around donations, but you know the, the founder had some very strong positions against like giving people NFTs or giving people various different rewards for their donations. And then we could never really develop a strong donation funnel. And so because there wasn't significant buy pressure on the token, 
it just sort of meant that the token would be, I mean, you know, to its credit, it actually has not inflated away, but it has sat at the 2019 price for three years. So that's missing on some ecosystem growth. Yeah. It, I mean, <laughs> being flat in this market is actually kind of decent, but it, it could have gone much further by having various sinks for the token or, or having mechanisms that rewarded people for doing public goods or doing social good on the buy side. And, you know, I, I think instead what we got was a very one-sided, a, a one-sided funnel. So that didn't quite work, you know, but as you were working on MetaMask during that time period, we saw a ton of progress and growth in the DAO ecosystem, in tooling, in the emergence of kind of gaming worlds that were started to get connected to Web3, to financial models that connected to gaming worlds, connected to Web3, all of it accessed, you know, through MetaMask. Can you talk about sort of the evolution that you saw from that perspective and then maybe what you saw in an organization like BitDAO? The thing about MetaMask's growth in history is that it isn't a use case wallet. And especially in the 2019 period, you know, there there was there were all kinds of people claiming that use case wallets, whether they be DeFi wallets or gaming wallets, were going to disrupt MetaMask. And Honestly, like it's that same narrative has kind of come back in the last few months. But generally speaking, MetaMask is so powerful because it's an interoperable, unopinionated, universal wallet. And it has the power of what a browser would give you as opposed to, you know, opening opening up a phone and you've got like three apps or something. And so I got to see these kinds of wave upon wave of growth. Even in the 2019 crypto winter, there was like growth around early gaming. Actually, Axie Infinity back in 2019, like Q4 of 2019, temporarily became one of the top dApps in MetaMask before Axie Infinity had really hit its stride. And there was there was just like this huge diversification of NFT, art and collectible things early DeFi, like Compound. And those sort of waves, to me, was it was an indication that this thing can be a truly interoperable and, and unopinionated wallet that serves as, as the gateway to the whole decentralized web. So we doubled down on that strategy and rejected the idea of becoming a singular use case wallet. And as a result, you know, there, there were DeFi use case wallets that failed to capture the energy of DeFi. And then DeFi Summer happened and MetaMask was so unopinionated that it was able to absorb a lot of the activity and enthusiasm and interest around DeFi in those moments. And I think it's a real argument for permissionlessness. And I'm, I'm trying to take that same philosophy and strategy and apply it in the BitDAO ecosystem. And I could say a little bit more about that. What is it? Because I know it's becoming kind of a force in the space, but what is it? Where did it come from? And maybe just what's the size of the treasury? What are kind of the shapes of it? And then we'll dive into more like the governance and the ideas. So treasury of BitDAO, the last I checked, was about $1.3 billion. It is a ecosystem DAO that was 
so so the the early story was that Bybit, which is a one of the top centralized exchanges in Asia for anyone that's not familiar with Bybit, along with a diverse set of VCs, By, Bybit wanted to diversify away from singularly being focused on trading fees and and the centralized exchange space. And they wanted to do so in a way that was more enabling of the ecosystem than what people like Binance had done or, you know, around, around BSC and stuff like that. So Bybit helped to create and to fund, uh, along with a a range of VCs, this multi-billion dollar fractal DAO. And so the idea of a fractal DAO was this DAO will join together with other projects in the ecosystem and form other DAOs. They're, they're not sub-DAOs. They, we call them autonomous entities because in many instances, those DAOs should go on and become larger and more important than BitDAO itself. So, so BitDAO funds a range of different projects. It has a product accelerator lab called Windranger Labs, which is a, a private company that it helped create. It also has a range of other DAOs. One, the largest of those is Game7, which is a joint DAO creation created by BitDAO and Forte, and a range of other gaming projects, uh, chains, Arbitrum helped to contribute to it, and a range of VCs. Game7 is itself a $500 million gaming ecosystem DAO, and Game7 submitted a product proposal to 2BitDAO with the thesis that play-to-earn gaming and many of the the early blockchain gaming use cases were deeply unsustainable. Many of the the devs that were working on these projects were building sort of like web two silos, and but but with a token on them. So what you got was a game that was like a less good version of a game that you could play in the traditional Web2 space, but with a token that you couldn't even take outside of the game because the game has a proprietary wallet. It has no ability to to carry those assets into NFT marketplaces or across chains. And instead, we, we had this situation where a lot of game projects are just launching like really, really short-term incentives that burn out in like a month or even less in some instances. Players are just cycling through all these games, farming the liquidity incentives, but the games themselves are not good. And so Game 7 was created to help create, to invest in, to give grants to, and to develop sustainable game dev tools to enable game developers to build in a more interoperable way and in a way that's more empowering of the long-term ecosystem. And so that's just one example of, of what BitDAO is creating. It, it also created a ZK DAO together with Matter Labs and the ZK Sync team. Uh, ZK DAO is a DAO that's focused on building out the ecosystem around ZK Sync and accelerating the adoption of ZK Sync. We've also got EduDAO, which is a collaboration of BitDAO and a coalition of different university campus groups to help students become builders in the ecosystem and help them join the ecosystem. BitDAO also has a, a major investment in Pleaser DAO and is helping to, 
to accelerate the adoption of like the the art NFT space and different different forms around that. Yeah, so I think it's first off really interesting sort of echo in your career because you were at Berkshire Hathaway building the Innovation Lab and Berkshire Hathaway is kind of like a conglomerate of large operating businesses and there's almost like a shadow or a warped reflection right in that in what you're doing now where you have a well capitalized entity or sort of like this unit which is entering into lots of operating projects with you know big counterparties and then setting up like these operating businesses and then that needs product strategy and so on. So one way I can kind of analogize is to think of like different generational approaches to what is it like to build an empire end of the day, like a, a business empire, right? Where in the case of Berkshire, you're really building all of it from the cash flow in the insurance business premium float. And you're using that to kind of, instead of just investing in a market index, you're doing that to actually accrue the businesses. And that's the game. Whereas here, you're using essentially exchange revenue float to fund the development of these bottoms-up communities, economic communities. And I've been recently thinking about DAOs as the like atomic productive unit in the web3 economy. So in the same way that, you know, like a business or a corporation or some like corporation not in the sense of it's a 1995 movie about a person in a skyscraper, but a corporation like the corporate body, right? The body that you take on to do work in the business world, the corporate body is the atomic unit of the economy. It's what generates surplus. It is what generates products. It is what generates GDP. And you need that structure for the economy to form. And so in Web3, DAOs, regardless of their naming or sort of like what's actually there are an attempt to create these economic units to build an economy and to have exchange. So one of the things that is really interesting to me in your description of BitDAO is how does it interact with other versions of itself what are the actual steps? Do people just go on email and have like a soft agreement? Do you spin up a Discord? Like, what does it mean for DAOs to collaborate or spin off fractal autonomous entities? Like, what is the actual way that happens? Yeah. So, yeah, it's a su- it's, that's a super good question. So, I think one of the things that's been the most stark to me about the DAO space is just how immature the tooling is. The last few years have seen, you know, we have Syndicate, we have Molox, and these are these are good for like investment clubs or DAOs that are small small teams that are coming together to collaborate around, you know, making a small number of investments or you have protocol DAOs like ENS DAO where these are very mature protocols that then create a DAO around them. And that DAO has a very limited subset or a limited purview where it's it's governing, you know, ENS or it's governing the handful of governance parameters and a grant budget for Uniswap. But for larger DAOs of, of the size of, of BitDAO that are doing DAO-to-DAO business development or doing DAO-to-DAO uh, agreements and, and launching other DAOs together with others. It's it's a super immature space. And so a lot of what we at BitDAO have also been developing is just the fundamentals of DAO tooling. So like 
how do we do, you know, we, we have a multi-billion dollar treasury. So there are all of these members of the DAO and how do we allow the members of our DAO to just to have governance over how our treasury is used to vote in external protocols, for example, or how do we form agreements with other decentralized protocols in a way that, you know, is, is actually meaningful and is, is actually empowering. And it can't just be like you sign a legal agreement or something. So, you know, in, in the instance of, of game seven, for example, you know, there, there was a, a proposal and capital that was contributed both by Forte and by BitDAO and, you know, the, the creation of this new entity and, you know, that was, was voted in by token holders. But in terms of the actual, the, the actual creation of a lot of the tooling for a lot of these things, or like getting the, the legal structure set up for how like the DAO pays people and those sort of things, like all of that is still in flux and it's still like super early days. And the, the tooling for how we handle governance between DAOs is super in flux and, and a big area of innovation for BitDAO. That's not something like we haven't announced certain products, but it's, it's one of the main areas of focus. We're also looking at like XP systems, for example. So like things to enable people who are participating in the DAO, whether they be community members, players, game devs, builders who are, who are building tooling for, for them to, to be able to, to do things like soulbound NFTs with, with token vote multipliers and all those kinds of things. We did a, a write-up a few weeks back about this idea of the CFO stack for a DAO in Web3. Because in fintech, there's been this like explosion in the automation of payroll and accounts receivable and expense management and you know spending, things like Brex, that have automated and repackaged a lot of what the financial function does in a traditional business. And it's still fairly early on, like... There are very many small businesses around the world, and most of them still don't use kind of modern tooling for their financial functions. And then you switch that question to to DAOs, and you say, okay, well, how do I pay my contributors? And what if they need to pay taxes? And what if they need benefits? And what if I pay in crypto, but they need fiat and they need off ramps? And you know, how do I get us a, a look through this project and see my accounting? And I think there's a lot of venture activity, early stage venture activity right now going on that touches on those themes. But I'm guessing if you have kind of like a, a multi-doubt structure, that's something that you really have to think about. Yeah, it's it's super important. And there's so many basic operations, like, you know, just, just being able to do some of the, the most, you know, basic agreements and create a, a token that represents those agreements or... To, to fund another DAO that are super immature. And so a, a lot of like a lot of work necessarily is focused on just basic core infrastructure. And especially in this mini crypto winter, whatever this is, there's been you know a, a particular focus and emphasis in the BitDAO ecosystem to focus more on bu- building permissionless core infrastructure for the ecosystem. You know, I, I think like in the early days, Windranger Labs was super focused on building a number of different DeFi apps and a number of different um, NFT apps and, and things of that category. 
the current focus is more on like let's let's build out the core infrastructure for our DAO. Let's let's contribute and invest in in core infrastructure projects, and let's make things that are going to be permissionlessly usable by by others. So you know, for for game seven, we're we're doing a lot of research into um, you know how we so we released a game dev report less than a week ago that is the product of interviews with a hundred different game dev shops. And we intentionally didn't put our own hypotheses in that document. We more just tried to surface what are the the problems that all of these game devs are struggling with and surfacing those and identifying areas of core infrastructure that the game dev ecosystem needs. And, you know, we're going to have a range of both internal product development things that we're going to be announcing. And we're also going to be working on investments, which are, are based on the hypotheses that are in that game dev report. This is another area I wanted to double click on, which is in the whole sort of laundromat of metaverse bingo, one of the things that to me is compelling, and we do have like a finance lens on this podcast, is what is the overlap between financial services, broadly speaking, but also those those that are performed on chain through DeFi and you know, gaming worlds. And we have right now a lot of buzz, you know, so for example, Matthew Ball's Metaverse book suddenly came out, as well as, you know, all these NFT projects, people trying to sell stuff. Minecraft recently came out saying no NFTs in our world. There's a lot of kind of like churning in the background around how digital environments will or will not have economics and finance in them. Can you talk about what you're seeing and and some of the trends that you are able to talk about between rendered game worlds and what people do there and then how that connects to economics and financial services. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, let's say let's let's just talk about it from the perspective of the player for a moment. And so, I I grew up playing games that cost $60 and they were narrative deep games that that were either like a single player game or a multiplayer game with high replayability and those games would boom or bust and not a lot in the middle i mean you know i I guess there's a lot that was in the range of profitable but there were a lot of very badly flopped projects and a lot of very very profitable projects and so it's a high risk business for the game developer and then mobile phones came along, you know, 2008 comes along and you get a range of games that are initially like sold for a dollar or, or they're free and they just have ads. And initially people thought this was going to be a really positive things, thing for game development because it made the games more affordable, more accessible. You know, they, they drew a more diverse audience because they could be more casual. And so it, games weren't just something that was for people that could dedicate 60 hours to playing through Zelda or Final Fantasy or whatever game you might want to play. And instead, it was something that you could pick up. You could play Doodle Jump or whatever that game where you like try to catch the ice cream scoops. Those were games that, you know, they, they validated that you could have more casual games and you could sell these games for $1 to $3 and they could be very, very profitable. And then... We increasingly saw that years later that other like free-to-play games with a difficulty curve that comes maybe 20, 
maybe 40, maybe even like an instance of, of Genshin Impact. That game has a difficulty curve that slams you around 60 hours into the game. The game's totally free until then. And at that point, all of a sudden, you hit this difficulty wall, and then the game becomes pay to win. And from the perspective of the players, this is a huge betrayal of what gaming is supposed to be. Suddenly, the games are not so much about skill that, you know, maybe you can beat the game without ever paying, but you're going to spend like 400 hours doing so. Or you could beat the game in like 60 to 80 hours and you could pay anywhere between uh, 100 and like $5,000. And this just feels like a bastardization of gaming to the players. And they've been jerked around. The game devs don't even like making these games. They, they feel, you know, if you talk to them, they feel it's super manipulative and it's, it's not what they want to be building. And so players look at NFTs, which are overwhelmingly not being given a lot of utility. So you have these NFTs in games, which are basically walled gardens. And they just see another version of the cash grab which is somehow even worse. And so there's been this really strong anti-NFT backlash. And so even those game dev companies, which are in the Web2 gaming space that have tried to enter the the NFT space, they they don't understand how to build these things in ways that actually are adding utility and that are making games more fun instead of less. And they get this, this angry mob of anti-NFT people that scares them into, into backing down. And so I think, I think for us in game seven, we need to, we need to make it so that the, the core infrastructure for building in a, for building GameFi is interoperable and permissionless by default. And some of that means, you know, it needs to be easier to launch game chains and for those game chains to be secured by by Ethereum or you know a, a modular chain framework like Eigenlayer or Celestia, and it needs to be super easy for wallets to interact with native games. So you know if if you're if you're using Steam today, you get your achievements, and those achievements are interoperable and your chat window and all, all of those things are interoperable across all of your games. But today <laughs> you get you get like 60 wallets for every web3 game that you play. You can't get the assets to an NFT marketplace like Genie or Gem or OpenSea or whatever. And you you're basically playing games that like they're not very good. <laughs> and so you know it's we need to build these game dev tool tools that help encourage sustainable GameFi. And I say GameFi intentionally because I, I really think that that play to earn has really become sort of this short-term Ponzi incentives. I mean, I, I use Ponzi a little broadly. It's not truly Ponzi stuff, but there's overwhelmingly short-term incentives that are being liquidity mined by the players who are not actually having a good time and you know, I, I I think that it's it's very possible to make something that's that's much better than, than than what we've seen so far. And I think we can create games that are fun first and that have a financial layer or a 
NFT or a swag layer. I mean, in some instances, NFTs are not financial. Sometimes they're just signaling and swag that proves you achieved an accomplishment. And, you know, I, I think we'll see a range of these types of things and, and a, a new wave of GameFi that's going to be much more sustainable than the, the previous wave. That's super interesting. And the dynamics are pretty complicated because there is this multi-level marketing kind of pyramid entry situation to anyone being early or anyone being late. That does crowd out the building of kind of more native game mechanics. If you were to point to something that is like your favorite or a really promising project that is using token incentives but has like a higher quality loop. Is there anything that that is like that for you that you've enjoyed? Yeah, so my favorite game in terms of fun is is Thetan Arena. And it has a number of incentives that are super interesting in in this way. So so for, first of all, there's no requirement to purchase an NFT to play this game. You can download it on your phone, you can start playing right now. If you if you don't have an NFT, you don't earn tokens from your gameplay. You're just having fun. And if you join a match, I'd say in any given match, roughly half of the players have NFTs and half of them are just playing for fun. And the NFTs are minted in seasons. The NFTs have a fixed purchase price that allows you to mint them. So you can mint one from anywhere between like a dollar or three dollars all the way up to like $2,500. And the rarity levels of those NFTs do not give you an advantage in gameplay. The rarity levels give you a higher payout of tokens when you win a match. And all of the NFTs are consumable. So, you know, an NFT can be used maybe 500 times, maybe a thousand times. And then it's burned. And let's say like a, a player gets really into playing as a specific character that's now been retired. Well, there's still a, a market for that character if they really want to keep playing as that character. And they can buy that NFT from another player on a secondary market, even like three seasons later when that NFT is no longer being minted anymore, there's still some that are available on the market. So there, there's rarity level levels and you know there's things like that. But principally the thing that's gonna like let you win is how good you are in gameplay. It's a it's a much more sustainable way to create incentives. You earn tokens based on whether you win a match. So you know if you spend $10, you lose every match with your NFT eventually that NFT will be burned and you'll have lost the $10. If you do really well, then you'll earn a lot more tokens and you know the, the tokens can either be used to purchase more characters. The characters can also be, you know, there's there's loot boxes that will allow you to, to randomly earn a character or you can buy the character you want specifically. And the, the tokens can also be staked and locked up and those sort of things. But I think there's just, so much depth and what is yet to be tried and <laughs> what will work. I want to ask you just one last question around it. I know we're coming up on time, but how do you think about what the rendering of these games and generally like financial worlds will look like? Is it, 
you know, augmented reality glasses in an Apple device? Is it a Facebook VR headset or is it just our existing monitors, you know, rendering a 3D environment? Or is it, you know, a text game in Twitter or Discord? Like, do you see what is being prioritized over the next few years for these types of experiences? Like, what's most likely to be adopted by people? You know, I, I think there will be a, a range of all those things. And they're going to appeal to very different types of gamers. And, you know, some, some people are, are super casual and they're going to be like super into the like metaverse social network type stuff. And some people are looking more for skill-based esports like, like Thayden Arena, or some people are, are looking for, you know, really great single player stories. And, and also, you know, by the way, there hasn't been as much development in the single player space with, with NFT things, but I actually think there is a, a space for that. And I'm happy to talk about that sometime, but <laughs> that would be pretty exciting. I think I love this topic and this conversation, but we do have to wrap if our listeners want to learn more about BitDAO or kind of what's going on, where would you direct them either on social or on web to find more? Yeah. So the BitDAO site is bitdao.io. The Game7 site is game7.io. You can also reach me on Twitter. My Twitter username is Jacob C, just the letter C underscore ETH or Jacob C dot ETH is my ENS name. And I'm super happy to, to talk to you and to, to engage with others. Awesome. Great to catch up, Jacob. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Lex. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the Fintech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time. <music>